This is Vancouver Housing Stories, a podcast mini-series about renting in Vancouver. I'm Helena Crobath, and I got amazing help putting this project together. To hear more about it and where these pieces came from, head over to the show page on SoundCloud. This episode centers around the life we can build with our neighbors, if we want it. First, in a lyrical deep dive, Jamie Lee Gonzalez uses interviews, audio essay, and poetry to create a piece about her shift in priorities that came after becoming a mother. She shares the difficulty of finding housing to suit her growing family, as well as the urban planning considerations that make neighborhoods possible or impossible for families with children. We then zoom in on a group of seniors at the Alice Saunders building in Vancouver's Hastings Sunrise neighborhood. We see how a proposed development might uproot their tight-knit community. These stories drive home that no model of housing can succeed without really listening to the residents themselves. We'll start now with the piece Building Family by Jamie Lee Gonzalez. I would have liked to have been in an apartment full of other families and parents you know like single parents or yeah you know double duty parents yeah whatever they're called just kidding (laughs) i don't even know you're just kidding (laughs) um yeah i would have been i feel like i would have been more comfortable in a family housing yeah Housing in Vancouver is a complex issue. It looks different to each of us. Some folks see housing as an unattainable dream or luxury. Some see it as an economic benefit or as an opportunity for development. Some see it as a resource of safety, security, and stability. In my experience, housing in Vancouver has typically been viewed as temporary. My name is Jamie Lee Gonzalez, and I come from a family of Portuguese immigrants on my mother's side and a bit of an unknown mix of heritage on my dad's side, including roots in the Squamish nation. At the time of this recording, I'm nine months pregnant with my first kid, and this pregnancy has completely shifted what housing security means to me. My partner's grandmother once told me that our first country is the womb, and this is true, really. Right now, my baby doesn't have any other house or nation or country other than me. My body is the start of the cycle in which my baby will experience life. Even with my womb acting as a home, I still carry barriers within me, in my body, in growing a baby. And that's the crux of housing for me. There are cycles or circles of support and freedom, but there are also defined edges and barriers. They each ripple out beyond my individual experience. This idea grew into a poem for me, which really helped me understand that livability and stability in housing, it means something completely different to me than it did before I was pregnant. From now on, housing is taking on a different meaning. So now I'm asking questions, not just for myself, but for my baby. Questions like, how are we creating neighborhoods that are actually accessible and functional for families? How is our city and this housing crisis failing to create livable neighborhoods for all folks? Home is my body and my barrier, heading south of sanity to heart-stained walls around me. Keep traces of memories and fragments of emotions that have filled the space. Complex tenderness, vulnerability, forward plunge into the triumphs of tight space. 
So many of our memories are linked to places. We create meaning in the places we live. When I think of my childhood, I think of where I grew up, the house I lived in. And as my due date looms closer, I can't help but think the place I'm living now will be where my kids' earliest memories are formed. Okay, so Renata learned how to crawl recently. Mm -hmm. So Marcelo um, discovered that he can now play with her. So he pretended to be um, the mama cow. And so she's the baby cow. And well, like they were crawling all over the house pretending to be cows. And he wanted somebody else to be the daddy cow. <laughs> this is the voice of Fiorella, a mother living in the False Creek South neighborhood. Yeah, they're pretty cute. And her husband, Brad. Probably my most important job ever, being a mom. Um, I'm originally from Peru. I've been living in Vancouver since 2010, more or less. Um, this is where we decided we wanted to, to start our family. Brad and Fiorella have two children, and they live in an affordable family housing building that was built in 1981. Affordable family housing is for people who have low to moderate income but may not be eligible for subsidized housing. I sat down with Brad and Fiorella one night after their kids had gone to bed. Since having Marcelo, their son, who's now four, their perspective on housing has had a major shift. Housing has gone from the place that you crash at the end of the day to a close examination of how housing is built, including soundproofing so that they don't have to worry about getting kicked out of their place for having a crying baby, which actually did happen to them when Marcelo was six months old. They were asked to leave their home because he was crying at night. The security part is so much more important now. It used to be, well, I mean, worst comes to worst, we crash with friends or we, you know, stay at my sister's house or whatever. It was never, you know, could even sleep in the car if we had to, if we were, for whatever reason, kicked out of a house as non-parents. But as parents, that's that's a lot scarier, a lot less feasible. Also, as parents, we want to have a place where we can have a community around us. And that didn't really be, that, that wasn't really, like... A concern for us when we were not parents like we were happy to just have you know housing in a nice neighborhood but we were not really thinking about the community around us so now I think having a secure place but having like a network of people around us um, is very important especially not having family um, so close. With Brad's family in Toronto and Fiorella's in Peru, part of what makes their neighborhood livable is the community around them, and a crying baby at night isn't an issue when all the neighbors have kids too. Fiorella and Brad both agree that the livability within their building is so strong because of the community of families that surrounds them. Their deck, where we set up our interview, opens up onto a grassy courtyard between the building's units. Some meters down the courtyard is a playground that's littered with extra toys left over from the day of play that took place. Green space and safe space to play for children is high up on the list of priorities for a livable neighborhood for both Brad and Fiorella. Although their building provides the space to play for their children, and living in a building of affordable family housing provides a community of other families to connect with, once they go beyond their micro-community, their family resources start to dwindle.
plunge into the triumphs of tight space, restrictions and submerged echoes of the fragile, searching a wild illusion for support outside the system, collective immune system broken. Handling loners like garbage and garbage like gold, home is the ripple effects, the roadblocks, and the sidesteps to go past them. We're on our way home from her after-school program. Yeah. And she was like, oh, I need to pee. I was like, well, you're going to have to wait till we get home. And yeah. she's like... Yeah, I have a small penis, right? And I was like, you have a small penis? You mean a small bladder? And she's like, yeah, I have a small bl- small bladder. <laughs> this is Tristan, a single mother who lives with her daughter in low-income housing in the Hastings Sunrise area. I come from Muscogee Cree Nation, which is central Saskatchewan. And I've been in Vancouver with my child for three years. After moving to Vancouver for school, her experience finding housing started with a 10-month stay at the Aboriginal Mother Centre, at which point they were able to recommend that Tristan and her daughter were ready to move to a place of their own. And when they told me that, I was kind of offended because I was like, I've had my own home. I was yeah, like, you don't you get to decide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who are you to decide yeah. if I am if I am able to have my own apartment, yeah, you know? Yeah, She said yes to the first apartment that they showed her in a low-income building near the mother center. For the first year and a half, she struggled with the impact her neighbors had on the home she was creating for her and her daughter. Tristan goes on to discuss how her low-income building lacks a sense of community as the tenants all qualify as low-income for different reasons and therefore carry out very different lifestyles with different priorities and varying necessities of resources. It's not a really a community, it's just a whole bunch of low-income people forced into one space. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not even a family unit. So who is dictating where families live in the city? If affordable family housing is only affordable for two-income families, then how are we housing families with one or no income? And what about growing families? Are there plans to create livable neighborhoods that encourage families to grow without forcing them out of the city? From what I can see, the answer to that last question is no. For example, Fiorella and Brad have two children, one male, one female. They live in a two-bedroom suite, which is enough space if their young ones share a room. But the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has other ideas about that. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation has a metric that they use to define um, overcrowding. overcrowding. So they... They wouldn't... They could kick us out, I guess, because they, when they advertise this suite, they... They specifically mentioned that, but um, I don't think they they would. They it would be a violation of I human have rights. Have, yeah. Harder to have another boy. When we become parents, we have to think about raising our kids in a safe neighborhood, getting them into a good school, providing for them, making sure that they take extracurriculars, and we definitely have to think about how we can spend quality time with them. Just by choosing to live in the city, parents may be compromising one or more of these concerns. If you live in Vancouver, chances are that you need to commute to work, or maybe even your child has to commute to school because of the competitive nature of our overcrowded school districts. This is a ripple effect into the other ways that we interact with our children. We spend less time with our children and more time commuting. Right now in Olympic Village, there's a big push from the city to densify the neighborhood, and yet the resources, like schools, are not adequate for the growing number of people. A group of False Creek area parents, including Fiorella, have started a campaign to bring attention to this issue. 
all over the creek there um it's like it's a pretty dense area and there's um like a few schools like there's full uh falls creek elementary and there's crosstown on the other side um and then what's the name of the other one edith cabell well, there's some others further, For, further yeah. south, but like but we're in, we're in the False Creek Elementary catchment, yeah. and but we don't know that we will end up that Marcella will end up being able to go to school there, despite the fact that in this same building there are eight other kids that should be in his kindergarten class, yeah, and they've spent. Um, most of their lives together, together playing yeah. together in this backyard here and maybe one of them or or, or uh, more will end up being shipped out to another part of the city yeah um so that because of for, overcrowding, for because because, of overcrowding. Yeah. there isn't enough room in that in in the false creek elementary school so the the school is an important part of the of the community yeah. As well, right? and yeah. So where is that disconnect happening between building family housing and then overcrowding in schools in the same neighborhoods? Yeah, so I think there's like a disconnect between like what the city plans and and like what the Vancouver School Board and the minister like plans and I don't really like don't really know how that planning and how 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 that work happens if like there's much input from the city into like what the school board does but right now for example like the um our school um so I'm, sorry falls creek elementary like this year there was a wait list of 40 kids for kindergarten that's two kindergarten classes extra extra um our like next like the catchment next to us it's um it's um the catchment for simon fraser fraser elementary this year the wait list for kindergarten was of 65 kids Nomads collect security and freedom by preference or pressure. We are fragments on lipless voices calling for coordination by fools who package neighborhoods neatly in boxes but forget the essentials, forget to factor in the functionality of community. We ask to be seen in full with room to grow without input on how to raise a family. As the city pushes to densify neighborhoods, it struggles to prioritize families. For Tristan, this disconnect is linked more to her identity as an Indigenous woman. Who are these people making policy about Indigenous people, for Indigenous people, without mm-hmm. Indigenous people? You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Tristan didn't have to deal with the school wait lists. Uh, there's a wait list for the other schools, but yeah. for the First Nation school, there wasn't. But she did struggle to feel comfortable and safe, even with the BC housing reps. Being alone in Vancouver with her daughter, the safest she felt in her home was when her brother came to visit. But there are rules against having another person staying in the apartment for more than 14 days. I mean, yeah, like, 
I'd feel I don't ever feel safe. So there's that, right? Yeah, yeah. Everywhere I go, and then there's, I don't know. There's something about like neighborhoods that give me different vibes, you mm-hmm. know. But they all like scare me because <laughs> yeah. I'm always because I don't know anybody and I don't feel safe anywhere. Just being an indigenous woman, you know what yeah, I mean. And yeah. then so, so yeah, I never felt safe. And it's like it's it's also a cultural, um, a cultural not a cultural barrier but like a cultural differences they Mm -hmm. don't understand us as indigenous people Mm -hmm. yet they work with a lot of indigenous people and they don't have any indigenous representation in bc housing low income yeah um they should have like an indigenous rep or like person yeah but they don't Mm -hmm. and if i were to have spoken with an indigenous person they would have been like oh yeah like that makes sense you have like your brother over for the summer or you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and like but my family comes from Saskatchewan, yeah. and if someone's going to sleep over, they're probably going to stay for longer than 14 days. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of how we are naturally, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I know a lot of people don't like that, but we're kind of used to it. We yeah. love each other. Like, in my first apartment, everyone would live with me. Yeah. In my one bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> now I have a two-bedroom, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just like, I felt so much safer. Mm-hmm. Just having someone Somebody. that I knew in my apartment yeah. being with me. Mm-hmm. So what do families need in a neighborhood? We need community and a sense of security. We need spaces that are not just inclusive for children, but are actually designed for our children to thrive. We need access to resources like grocery stores, clinics, dentists, and schools that our kids can actually walk to. We need cultural programming in our neighborhoods that create tolerance so that Indigenous mothers feel safe. Are these reasonable requests? In a housing system that's profit-driven, can we start to integrate some humanity back into a neighborhood model? And can Vancouver be a livable place for families of all income levels and dynamics? Home is the community given space to flow. It's who I am. And it's who you are to me. Home is inside me and I'm inside it. Home is my body. Home is my barrier. The music in this episode was produced by Davis Steele. That segment was created and produced by Jamie Lee Gonzalez. This next piece was produced by me. It's called A Place for Life. It's about a local building where residents are fighting for their lives. I don't see some of the elderly here getting visits from their, from family or, it's a lonely existence here if you don't have a family and you don't have friends. And this community that we share, we have made friends. We have friends up on Hastings that serve us and make sure they know our name when we come through. We go to the corner store, they know we're safe. We get off the bus here at the corner, we're safe.
We haven't had a problem in this neighborhood. We don't have people running around trying to hurt each other. And if you need some help in this building, you can always knock on a door and get some help. And I don't know many places where you could do that. I'm not leaving here. They'll have to drag me out of here. That was part of a speech by Dutch Robinson, a well-known musician and resident at the Alice Saunders building, which is in Hastings Sunrise, an older neighborhood on the east side of Vancouver. Although most residents at Alice Saunders are seniors, today Dutch is addressing a crowd of all ages. So why are the seniors at Alice Saunders hosting this barbecue? They're trying to make people see that their home is more than just a building. Alice Saunders is managed by Brightside Community Homes Foundation, a non-profit housing provider that owns and manages 26 buildings in Vancouver and has assets worth nearly $250 million, according to their website. So far from the simple-sounding concept of social housing, this is a large-scale commercial operation. It partners with for-profit developers, NGOs, and government. The Alice Saunders Building, built in 1977, is one of five buildings that Brightside has proposed to redevelop in the near future. Brightside does have a history of redeveloping its properties, but Alice Saunders has also been extensively renovated recently. And what's, what happened was that um, Brightside had called a meeting with the tenants, basically to tell them that they were planning to demolish the building. That's Sara Sagai, an organizer with the Vancouver Tenants Union in the Hastings Sunrise area. And the reason for demolishing the building was that they had gotten a grant from the province. Um, pretty bad reason. Hmm. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with this building. It's a very nice, well-maintained, well-kept building. 64 units. There's a really strong community of people who've lived there for decades. They have a really nice garden. They love their garden. Um, just the building has everything. And compared to other Brightside buildings, they should really be, you know, cherishing this one because I think the, the, the residents probably have a role in it too, you know, instead of kicking people out and just celebrating what exists. Well, it's all about moving. I stayed here for 19 years. And for these 19 years, the place was cool. And this was a very old, old building about to fall down. Then they came, they do construction while we're inside. Day and night, 24 hours a day, raining, and the construction was going on. They had all, all lot of things upstairs and downstairs. They were working the whole night for a couple of two weeks to fix the whole building outside. It was an old building they made. All they see the new thing that you see outside. This is the second, uh, the second construction that they do. Right? Johnny's been telling me about all the construction that's already been done here, the disturbance it caused and how long it took. You'd think this building would be appreciated after all the work and money already sunk into upgrades, never mind the time tenants have spent building gardens and relationships. Right? So, we are here now, what should we do? Now we tell us but I've been almost, the people about 20 years, 30 years, but I'm 19 years now. 
I know all these, all the tricks here. From the sounds of it, Johnny's grown used to being shuffled in social housing, but that doesn't mean he's accepted it. He describes fighting back, even consulting a lawyer, just trying to have some stability in where he lives. They pull us around. It's not the first time. My lawyer used to fight with me before my lawyer used to go uh, to the United, United Church lawyers to, to, to get my case. Every year was this thing. They started to send us to the union, to the certain place, uh, the, the housing division. Some people of us, they sent us letters, all this. So we had to fight back, fought back for years. Johnny's frustration points to a big problem with social housing and other social services when they don't consult and really center the people who are using the service. Johnny and others he knows have had to spend years of energy just to keep their housing, to have a little say in where they live. Um, two months ago, residents here got a notice that they would be displaced from their homes um, or demevicted because Brightside wants to build a much larger building than this. The voice of that speaker is Jen Efting, an organizer with the Vancouver Tenants Union who's been helping the Alice Saunders residents to know their rights and organize. Right now there's 64 units in this building. They want to build something that has 150 units. The project is being funded by BC Housing to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Nobody is a opposed to increasing affordable housing in the city. We want that. But what we don't want is displacing low-income seniors to create low-income housing. We think there has to be a way to respect the dignity and the well-being and the lives of our neighbors who live here. Anyway, people were really devastated and um, Jean had gone over and, and apparently had had uh, caught the tail end of the meeting and and talked to the bright side person and grilled her a little bit. Um, that's what we heard. And anyway, so that was our um, initiation of our connection with the building. And <coughs> we put a call out to our Hastings Sunrise chapter and said, this is happening, who wants to come? And then suddenly we had like six people door knocking that one night. And that felt really good. Hi, Rick. Hi. You're a resident here? Yes, I am actually, yes. For how long? A year and about a month and a half. Okay, so you just got here and now you're being asked. Yes, and I was just saying to this nice lady, Sue, here, that I lived at Point, in Point Grey at 16th and Dunbar for 36 years, okay, without any problems. I do have some health problems. I'm nearly 73 years old. And I, I suffer from chronic anxiety and chest pains. Anyway... My social worker found me this place, and now they're doing this to me again. You know, I, His last building was demo-evicted as well. Yeah, it was the same thing, you know, and, and now I'm stuck here worried about what's going to happen to me, you know. That's I'm, not a good combination for anxiety for anybody. Not at all. I'm on three different kinds of medications, you know, and I just took some to, to come down here and join the party, you know. So uh, I'm really stressed out about the whole thing. Cause I just fixed the place up the way I want it, and now they're telling me I'm probably going to demolish the whole building, you know. It's a beautiful, very well-maintained building, uh, great people, I love everybody here, and uh, I've had no major problems, you know, and uh, I'm just hoping it all works out. I hope they can get this done successfully as soon as possible. You know. We know, and we know this from talking to the residents here, the sleepless nights, the stress, the extra trips to the doctors, because of what Brightside is doing to these people. And it's not just hearsay. 
it's also that we know that um, medic, you know, medically we know when seniors are displaced from their communities, there's increased mortality and there's worse health outcomes for those people. And we're not just gonna stand by and watch that happen to our neighbors. At this barbecue and celebration of Alice Saunders building, it becomes clear that the residents are asking for a little more than to save their building. They're asking for the powers that be to acknowledge that they're a community. Maddie's going to share some words about the community and what it's meant for the choir that practices here. Hi everyone. Um, it's so lovely to be here today and my name is Mari and I sing with Marianela sitting back there and Araceli and a few others in Viene Sonando, a small ensemble folkloric. And we, this building, I want to talk as a friend of this building and everybody here. Um, I want to say that yes, there's a lot of vulnerability because of age and illness and being isolated from family perhaps, but there's a lot of strength and beauty in this building. There's a lot of talented cooks and barbecuers. I've tried the food. Amazing gardeners, um, amazing music with Dutch and other musicians. And then you guys were so generous. And for over two years, you said yes to our practicing right here. Sometimes we got a little bit noisy, sorry, but all with Latin rhythm for you guys. And uh, yeah, I just want to say today that this space provided us with the beginnings for our little group. Now we practice elsewhere, but whenever you want us back, we will. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, and I'm totally supporting this move to stay because you deserve it. Your place is here. This is your place, and no one's else, no one else's. So thank you for listening. Thank you. It's not ideal to see a social housing system that crunches people like their numbers. Almost any structure could fit more units in it. Most places could be densified. But the idea that simply maximizing space is always the best thing needs to be challenged. There are lots of buildings that are in more need of upgrade right now. And this community is an example of how neighbors have made something work for themselves. Because this neighborhood happens to be highly desirable, it's no doubt tempting for developers to get those market rents. But at the same time, when businesses are providing social services, there has to be more to the bottom line than maximization. The people who have built lives and the people who need to build lives should have some degree of security and some say in where they end up. When a senior's community is being disrupted by development without a thought of their existing lives together, that indicates that something is broken. Is housing policy preventing people from forming deeper, longer, wider ties? This episode was produced by me, Helena Crobath. The first piece, Building Family, was produced by Jamie Lee Gonzalez. Thanks to the Vancouver Tenants Union and all the residents who spoke to me at the Alice Saunders building. Thanks also to Vivo Media Arts Centre for supporting this project and the BC Arts Council.